Iran has never ceased to engage in provocative acts. This isn't a new state of affairs for Iran, right? So Iran's been engaged in provocative acts for decades, right? So whether you're looking at Iran's efforts to build a covert nuclear program, its use of proxies in Iraq to kill American troops, uh, back in 1983, the bombing of the Marine Corps uh, barracks that killed 241 Americans, uh, they have not been shy about coming directly at their adversaries really almost ever since the revolution. Welcome to the first episode of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and the political right on issues in national security and foreign policy. Today we have with us Jody Herman, who is the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and Jamil Jaffer, who is founder and executive director of the National Security Institute and also the former chief counsel and senior advisor of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. I'm Lester Munson, currently a senior fellow at the National Security Institute, although, Jamil, looking to be promoted. And I was also the former, I am the former staff director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Today we'll be discussing escalating tensions between Saudi Arabia and Iran and possible U.S. responses to conflict in the region, as well as Chinese President Xi's handling of near-open revolt in Hong Kong. All right, so let's get to it on Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, Iran's been turning up the heat in the Middle East uh, for several months. Most recently, it struck at Saudi oil facilities in Quraysh, uh, doing a ton of damage to uh, Saudi's ability to export oil, knocking it down by about half, which is significant for the world economy. Over the summer, the Iranians shot down an American military drone in the Persian Gulf. In fact, President Trump halted a U.S. military response to that event just moments before go time. So what's, Jamil, what's to stop the Iranians uh, from continuing these provocative acts if no one ever responds to them? Well, it's a great question, Les. I mean, part of the challenge is that we talk about strategic deterrence, but we don't practice deterrence in any sort of common sense approach to that word in the modern era. We don't talk about what our red lines are. We don't talk about what happens to our enemies if they cross those red lines. And then to the extent we have talked about red lines in the, in the recent past, when they've been crossed, we haven't enforced them. Those things make it hard to deter bad elements from t- undertaking actions against us. Now, that's been true of the prior administration and the current administration. Right? We've talked a tough game right, for a long time, and the challenge is that when you don't enforce your red lines, right, it's not surprising people test them and cross them. The other piece of it, too, is to the extent that we have uh, pushed back against uh, Iranian aggression, we've oftentimes done it uh, either covertly or behind closed doors or quietly. The same has been true of North Korea. Um, and the problem with that in terms of deterrence is it doesn't exact a price for our enemies in public, and it doesn't uh, send a message to the larger world community about what happens when you cross U.S. red lines. And so it's not surprising that we see in, in the South China Sea with China. It's not surprising with Russia in Ukraine. It's not surprising that we see North Korea pushing the envelope on nuclear issues. And with Iran, across the globe, the U.S.'s position on deterrence has weakened um, for the better part of a decade and has continued over the last few years. And I think that's partly responsible for why the Iranians continue to get more and more aggressive. They don't see a substantive response, and it's not in public. It's hard to expect them to be deterred. So I'm not sure I see it in quite the same way that you do, mostly because I think Iran has never ceased to engage in provocative acts. This isn't a new state of affairs for Iran, right? So Iran's been engaged in provocative acts for decades, 
right? So whether you're looking at Iran's efforts to build a covert nuclear program, its use of proxies in Iraq to kill American troops, uh, back in 1983, the bombing of the Marine Corps uh, barracks that killed 241 Americans, uh, they have not been shy about coming directly at their adversaries really almost ever since the revolution. So I think the only difference in recent weeks or months has been that they're maybe using fewer proxies to carry out their activities and engaging in them more directly. Does that signal a change in their perspective or a change in their effort to message? Maybe. Maybe it does. Or maybe they're just continuing to look for leverage like they always have, both in terms of how they sit on the global stage, but more importantly for them, where they sit regionally and whether or not they're capable of defending themselves within their regional security architecture. So, Jody, let me let me push you a little bit on that question, because I think where most non-Trump Republicans are, in other words, Republicans who aren't Donald Trump, uh, are on this issue is I think that they want to see the administration have a more robust response to direct attacks on the United States uh, or its or facilities of friends that are important to our country. So the attack on the drone, the destruction of the U.S. drone, the attack on the Saudi oil facilities. I think most Republicans would like to see the president give a more robust response. That not necessarily that for, they're for total war, but they would like to see the U.S. match that or more with Iran to teach them a lesson. Where do you think? How would you characterize the position of Democrats on what the president should be doing right now? I think Democrats would be very concerned about this president taking a more offensive stand against Iran, right? So, yes, they shot down a drone. It was an American drone. The attack on the Saudi oil facilities was an attack on Saudi oil facilities. It is true that the U.S. purchases and continues to purchase a large amount of oil from Iran, and part of our energy security is tied to our ability to purchase from Saudi Arabia, but that that's not going to continue in perpetuity. I don't think most of the American public, nor Democrats, are particularly interested in starting a war with Iran over Iran's attack of Saudi oil facilities. There is not a lot of love on Capitol Hill, I don't think on either side of the aisle, certainly by Democrats, for the Saudi government, particularly in the wake of the murder of Adan Khashoggi. Jamil? No, I think that's exactly right. I think Jody is measuring the the temperature of the American public and Republicans uh, and Democrats in Congress exactly right, which is to say nobody has an appetite for war in the region. That being said, the attack on the Saudi oil fields, while it was an attack against Saudi Arabia directly, clearly was intended to have an impact on the United States and on the world price of oil on our allies in Europe uh, and our allies across the globe. And so this wasn't intended to not send a message to the United States. In fact, uh, as Jody correctly lays out, it is a continuing string of Iranian activities going back to 1983, but more recently uh, with the bombings of, of oil tankers in the Gulf, uh, the attacks, uh, the attack on the U.S. drone, um, and now this attack on Saudi oil facilities. All of these are designed to send a message and to try to, try to create a divide between us, the United States, and our policy with respect to the Iran nuclear agreement um, and the Europeans and other folks in the region and to make them pay a price for our decision on, on the Iran nuclear agreement, which, they, which the Iranians know from public reporting is a point of contention between us and our European allies. So the Iranians are playing the smart. They believe that they will not see a response from the United States or our allies. And I think any response, to the extent we engage in one, has to be a coalition effort. It has to be uh, not just us, but our European allies, as well as the regional actors, Saudi Arabia, 
UAE, Kuwait, the countries that we are allied with in that area, Bahrain. Um, and yet, uh, I believe, my sense is that the Iranians don't think we're going to do anything. They believe so far they've gotten away with the bombings of the tankers. They've gotten away with the downing of a U.S. drone. They now appear to be potentially about to get away with the, the destruction of half of – or temporary destruction of half of Saudi Arabia's ability to send out oil. That's a real problem if well, it goes unresponded and, to. And they've and, – and aside from kind of pushing the U.S. and its Western European allies apart, they've also pushed apart the two main political parties in Congress. So I, Republicans and Democrats are coming at this from, from different perspectives, right, Jody? So I, I actually have a little bit of a different take on this. I'm not sure. I think up until recently, maybe up until their bombing of Saudi oil facilities, they were doing a decent job of pushing apart the U.S. from its European allies and others on the question of Iran. I'm not sure that they didn't overplay their hand with this most recent attack. And they may have actually galvanized the world community for, at a minimum, a diplomatic response uh, to Iran. The last time we had kind of a unified global moment on Iran was when the IAEA announced that Iran's nuclear program had military dimensions. And at that moment, the world community said, wait, 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 like, that that's a step too far. I'm not sure that this doesn't go a step too far in a, in a similar way, uh, particularly for a country like China, which purchases a huge amount of its oil and its energy security and the diversity of its energy security is requires purchases from Iran. So I'm not I'm not sure that they didn't push everybody too far, such that the global community doesn't feel like they're going to need to at least have a diplomatic response and potentially a diplomatic response with a little with a few teeth in it. Look, I think I think you're. I actually think you're exactly right, Jody. And and you know, you and Les were the architects of the bipartisan response uh, back when that political that that military dimension of Iran's nuclear program uh, was announced, and that that bipartisan decision in the United States is what led to uh, the ultimate coalition between the U.S. and Europe on this very issue. So I think you're exactly right. Uh, I think the one challenge, though, is if the only response is diplomatic, I fear the Irans won't take a lesson from that. Right, And they haven't yet to date. And that may be a fair criticism of our Iran policy from 1983 to the present day or from 1979 and the revolution, that it's never really had a, sort of an edgy or, or you know, a component that has teeth in it. Um, so, But the question is, when is the time for that? And when is that appropriate? Right, it may not be now. Let's 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 shift a little bit. Jody, all right, make a quick point. Go ahead. Right. So I have this quick point to make, which is – I think that's largely true, and the only teeth that we've had, the only impactful response we've had is sanctions, and I hate to always go back to sanctions, but the reason the Trump administration has not been able to inflict very much pain, or at least the pain that they wanted to inflict on the Iranians, is because they haven't had the global community engage uh, behind them, right? So they've attempted to put all of the pre-JCPOA sanctions back into place. They're actually attempting to bring Iranian oil exports down to zero, which those of us who are close to these agreements understood was never a possibility because China was never going to stop purchasing. So what you needed was some... They've actually done the best possible thing they could for us, which is to galvanize the global community to react uh, to Iran, and maybe maybe we take a step further on. All right, let's all right, let's try to segue from that to uh, one of my favorite topics, John Bolton. I may be one of the few people uh, around who thinks John Bolton's pretty good, but he's out as the president's national security advisor. Amazingly, he lasted for 17 months, despite the official reason for his dismissal being that he disagreed with the president on uh, policy and process. But other than that, uh, it worked for a year and a half, basically. So. 
Uh, Bolton was there, uh, started in April of last year. A month later, the U.S. Trump pulled out of the JCPOA, out of the Iran nuclear deal. And now here, when things are heating up with Iran, as kind of a logical conclusion from the U.S. pulling out of that deal, Bolton is out as national security advisor, and he's replaced by uh, Robert O'Brien, who's kind of an unknown, relatively speaking. Uh, He could be as hawkish on Iran as Bolton was, but he's not the lightning rod for criticism uh, that that John Bolton is and was. So what what does the removal of Bolton have in terms of implications for Trump policy? Does this kind of open up a door for him to maybe have a more uh, open, more of a legitimately open response to the Iranians? Does it give him some flexibility with the Europeans? Is it an opportunity for him to maybe resolve this thing? So Jody. I think Donald Trump hired John Bolton after watching him for years and years on television as a commentator, and it's not a, it wasn't a surprise to anybody that they pulled out of the JCPOA, JCPOA shortly after he came into the White House. But that may have been the beginning and end of where they agreed. Uh, So at this point in time, I actually don't know what happens next, other than I personally think all we can do is listen to Mike Pompeo, because he seems to be the only person who actually has Donald Trump's ear on national security matters. Look, I think I think that's almost certainly correct. Look, the president had a very clear view on the JCPOA from the campaign. He made it clear he didn't like it. He thought it was a terrible deal. He was planning on getting out of it. So his eventual departure from it was not surprising. I think actually what was the most surprising element of his Iran policy was the fact that he stuck with it for the better part of two years or so. Um, and I think at the end of the day, it was almost inevitable. I don't think you can attribute that to John Bolton, although certainly um, his position uh, mattered. And I think the two actually – they paralleled one another. The president was planning on getting out of JCPOA. He had made that decision after feeling like his national security team had led him down the wrong path for the better part of two years. I actually think what happened with Bolton's departure is less about Iran and more about Venezuela. And that I think the president felt like he was led down a similar road that he was led down uh, by his earlier team when it came to Iran uh, by John Bolton on Venezuela, but just on a more hawkish front. He thought that he uh, had the advantage. Uh, he thought that uh, that uh, Guaido would be able to take power, that we'd be able to push Maduro out. When that didn't happen, he felt like he was out on a limb, wasn't willing uh, to go the next step and, and send troops down there um, or to do anything very aggressive, which has been a theme, I think, with the, with the current White House. Um, and so Bolton, I think, lost the edge there. And I think the president felt like he was put out on, on, on a limb on that one. And so now uh, we have – I think we saw the same thing you know, with John Kelly. We saw somebody who was trusted like Pompeo is today. And the question is, how long will that relationship last, right? The president has a tendency to move through people fairly rapidly. Uh, They're trusted one day, um, you know, a few weeks go by and something happens and he doesn't feel like they're on the right path. So we'll see what happens. I think you're right that today the best place to look for the U.S.'s national security policy is Mike Pompeo. We'll see how that plays out. Well, I think the other, you know, kind of personality issue here is that it's possible in the long run that the John Bolton era will be seen as a blip in the rise to power of Mick Mulvaney. Mulvaney's and Bolton never got along. Mulvaney appears to have won the little civil war, and uh, and Bolton's on the outs. I think uh, he didn't Bolton didn't necessarily get along with Pompeo either. But this is a real victory for Mulvaney in consolidating power in the White House. Jody, do you want to? Yeah. So I, 
I think we kind of go back to the beginning of our conversation here a little bit about what does this mean for this president if we cross red lines and, and nothing happens. And you have to back up to looking at diplomacy holistically. You need to be able to forecast your steps always when you're conducting foreign policy and to look at what's going to come next down the line. So if you think diplomacy tends to be a weak posture and that you need to put out ultimatums, that's fine. But then you have to decide what happens when those ultimatums aren't met. And that's true whether you're talking about North Korea or Venezuela or Iran. So time after time with this administration, we've seen him with a security team that is hawkish, leading him down a road where he lays out ultimatums, but then is uninterested in taking the next step. Well, I'm me, not suggesting that you, he should. I'm just saying you've got to forecast. This, you, isn't a, yeah. this isn't a game. You have let, to forecast what's going to come down the let's road. Let's flip this into the meta question, though. Obama had a similar problem with his red line on Syria, where he talked tough and then ultimately decided he didn't really want to back that up. Trump has done it more, but it's essentially the same problem. Both of our last, this president and the last president, pulling back from U.S. engagement in the world, less willing to use force. Is this is this a, a part of a bigger trend? What does it What does it mean for U.S. foreign policy? Is it because we're now a, or are about to be a net energy exporter, so we're not as concerned about the Middle East? What's the What's the big driver here on decisions like this, Jamil? Look, I think that's certainly part of it. I think that the country uh, is is grown weary of the war in Iraq. Um, um, and the war in Afghanistan. We saw that um, in the Obama election, and we saw that with, with uh, the President Obama's foreign policy, even though he did increase the troops in Afghanistan. Um, he did have to go back to Iraq with ISIS. Um, there was clearly an, an effort to, to pull back and to end, end the endless wars. Donald Trump has exactly the same foreign policy when it comes to ending, ending endless wars. And in fact, uh, you know, one might argue that part of the decision to pull back on the on the Iran response to the drone strike uh, came when some have alleged that when Tucker Carlson said to the president, you campaign on a promise to end these endless wars, and here you are about to start another one. And so, you know, again, whether you debate whether it was Tucker Carlson or not, right, clearly that's in part animating the president's decisions here, and one that I think accurately reflects the mood of the country. The country's increasingly inward focused. You look at the entire uh, slate of candidates on the Democratic side that might challenge Donald Trump, but one, Joe Biden, they all have a similar view on foreign policy, which is more in the Obama realm and the Obama camp than in the Hillary Clinton sort of more forward-leaning camp. And that's, you know, and so I think at the end of the day... It's possible Joe Biden is the most hawkish presidential candidate in either party right now. Which is kind of astounding if you think about it, right? Right. So there's actually congruity amongst the parties on this issue right now. And that impulse is coming directly from the American public who is done with ongoing perpetual wars in in any part of the world. So... All right, let's let's, let's 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 ask let's let's go let's talk about Iran before we kind of segue to our other big topic. Uh, it, Americans don't like the current government in Iran. These guys took our diplomats hostage back in 1979. Fifty-one Americans held them hostage for a year and a half. They weren't let go until early uh, 1981. Since then, there have been hostile relations between the U.S. and Iran. Iran uh, humiliated some U.S. Uh, naval. Uh, officers, uh, when they captured one one of our ships, went into their territory. Uh, There's the current uh, conflict. At some point, is it possible that Iran is so provocative that they kind of trigger a reaction from those Trump voters who are are kind of worried about American honor and American prestige and are going to take this personally and want to see the president do something about it? What's the risk there? Do you have a sense for that, Jamil or Jody? 
I don't think so. Uh, it's not that Iran isn't being provocative. It is incredibly hard for me to see a situation where the American public stands up and says we should undertake military action vis-a-vis Iran. Uh, in the absence of an actual attack on U.S. persons or U.S. military personnel, that might do it. But in the absence of that, I, I really can't foresee a situation where any of the American public has appetite for going to war with Iran. Well, and that's exactly the challenge. The Iranians read it exactly the way Jody has described it because that's probably an accurate reading of the American voter. And so the question then becomes, what does the U.S. administration do with that? Do they lead and say, we have to bring the American people to this conflict because if we allow it to continue this way, the constant bleeding. We, we, we saw hundreds, if not, you know, a you know, a thousand American soldiers killed by Iranian proxy forces during the Iraq War. Now, you know, the Bush administration and the and the Obama administration sort of didn't make that a big issue, didn't make it public because nobody wanted to get in another conflict with Iran. And yet, the reality is, we suffered very real casualties at the hands of Kitab Hezbollah and other Iranian proxy forces. And so, what we're seeing with Iran continues to be an effort to bleed us against our against our allies and to uh, to harm our economy with these strikes on the oil supplies. Even though we're a net exporter, right? Doesn't mean the world prices of oil doesn't have a direct impact on our economy. It does, and the Iranians know it. And. They judge, perhaps accurately, that the U.S. doesn't have the stomach for a fight. And so they're willing to sort of keep pressing the envelope and press the edge. These attacks will get more aggressive. They will happen more in cyberspace in particular, where there's there's more of a level of deniability. We'll see more attacks like these against our allies. And perhaps some even directed at us. When they shot a U.S. drone down and we essentially blinked, right, they read that. And by the way, it's not just the Iranians that see that. The Russians see it. The Chinese see it, and the North Koreans see it. And so this is a larger trend in American response. If we fail to respond over and over again, our allies will take a message from that, which is that we may or may not be there with them. And our enemies will take a message from that, which is that they can press the envelope with us. It's no surprise that in the aftermath of the the decision on Syria, that the Russians pressed the envelope in Ukraine, that China pressed the envelope on on South China Sea, and we continue to see that China and Hong Kong gets more aggressive because they see us not being willing to respond. Before we pivot to Hong Kong, let me just say this. I have to give Vladimir Putin a little bit of credit here because immediately following the attack on the oil facility, he stood up and said, wait, wait, we have this really great anti-aircraft defense system called the S-300, and you should buy it from us. I'll give you a deal. I'll give you a good deal. We will protect you. I'll give you a good deal. Morning price. Like the the Turks. Like the Turks did. Well, for what it's worth, I think the Iranians are drastically underestimating the willingness of regular Americans to strike back at them if this thing gets hotter. I think the American people are tired of this nonsense. They've never liked the Iranian government. And President Trump is is, play, is risking losing some of his voters by not being tough enough on this. That's my view. So let's do a quick yes or no exit question. Will the U.S. strike targets in Iran in the next three months? Jamil, yes or no? Yes, because I think the Irans will continue to push the envelope and push us to a place where we don't have a choice but to do it. Jody? Maybe, but they, if we do, you won't know about it. Interesting. I, I think it's yes and that we'll know about it. All right, so that's uh, that was not the result I was anticipating. Okay, let's flex to China and Hong Kong. China's dealing with a ton of huge problems right now. Uh, Hong Kong is in near open revolt. People there are openly talking about independence, democracy, human rights, things that are anathema to Beijing. 
in western China, uh, the government has sent millions of Muslim Uyghurs to concentration camps, and they appear to be trying to completely dismantle an entire culture. Taiwan is having a, a, a yet another democratic election in a few months, and the Chinese economy appears to not be doing well at all. Uh, official statistics aren't really believed by anyone anymore. In the middle of all this, President Trump is imposing tariffs almost at random on Chinese products. He's raising tariffs. He's lowering tariffs. He's imposing new tariffs. Sometimes he holds, he cancels them. Sometimes he postpones them. Uh, in any event, tariffs are happening constantly. Um, China's the world's biggest uh, importer of oil, of energy. It needs a peaceful Middle East. And as we were just talking about, there's kind of a brewing battle between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Things are pretty tough for China right now. So in light of all that, how does put yourself in President Xi's shoes. He's got uh, this two one country, two systems uh, approach that is supposed to be going on with Hong Kong. The Hong Kongers are rejecting uh, the, the heavy hand of Beijing. People are demonstrating. They're calling for things as radical as independence. How, how should President Xi respond right now? What's the, what's the smart play for him, given all of the other turmoil that's going on in, in his portfolio? Well, look, Les, I mean, I think that the smart play is probably what he's doing, which is cracking down, but not at a level that reaches Tiananmen Square massacre levels. And at the end of the day, he's just going to outweigh them. Right? It's been 100 days of protests, and there's been no massive uptake, uptick and no massive set of casualties. 1,300 arrests, number of deaths, number of serious injuries. Uh, but the world community does not seem galvanized to do anything. And if they were, they'd run into the exact same problems we've seen or similar problems that we've seen in Iran. So the world community is not ready to defend uh, the democracy activists in Hong Kong, although they should. And so the question becomes – why not continue to let this play out? If Xi cracks down aggressively, right, I think he runs the risk that the world community turns against him. If he continues to do what he's doing, it may be the steam runs out on these protests. It's hard to see uh, the folks in Hong Kong getting much more aggressive, given that over the last 100 days, they haven't. Uh, so, you know, and Xi estimates, like the Iranians do, that he can get away with both what he's doing in, in Xinjiang, right? And by the way, it's not just Muslims. It's Christians. Churches are being taken down also. It is an all-out effort, yes, primarily focused on a – what I think is el- el- ending up to be a genocide against Muslims, but also it's a, it's a crushing of religion across China in, in an effort to reimpose the Communist Party's power over people, which had for a long time played soft with religion. It's happening in Tibet more aggressively than it's ever happened before. And so, you know, this is a larger theme that I think we'll talk about at the end, too. But at the end of the day, if Xi estimates, I think correctly, that he will not get a lot of pushback from the West, and that even if they did, what would they do, Right that he can get away with this and continue to drag it out and let the, let the protests run their course. Yeah. I, I don't agree with that. I think kind of like the Iranians, I think China's overstepped its hand here in two spaces. Uh, one, with its actions both internally and externally or in communities that are close to China, so Taiwan, Tibet, East Turkestan, uh, and Hong Kong, that he's overstepped his boundaries here. So what were actions that were previously difficult to confirm no longer are, right? So these are very public developments. The The situation with the Uyghurs in East Turkestan has become a front-page news story. Uh, 
China's actions to repress the Tibetans and the Dalai Lama is not quite a front page news story, but it's a news story. And certainly Hong Kong has been on the front page of every paper internationally for about 100 days now. So what does that mean for China? It means that they're losing control of their narrative, and not just externally. They're losing control of their narrative internally, which is actually a bigger threat to the continued leadership of the PRC, to the, to the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah, I, so if you if you take a look at what's going on in Hong Kong, where people are demanding their you know individual rights and democracy and independence, things that are anathema to the Chinese Communist Party. In Taiwan, they're going to hold an election demonstrating that Chinese people, you know, granted in a different location, can have democracy and capitalism and prosperity without having the Chinese Communist Party run them. It seems like it's a direct threat to the Chinese model. I think they're going to they're going to have to crack down here. Aren't at a certain point, Jamil? Aren't they? Otherwise. If, if they let these flowers bloom, they're going to they're gonna start getting planted in mainland China. So the second thing I was going to say is that's the first problem, is that they're losing control of their narrative. The second problem that they're having is that the second piece of their effort was the Belt and Road Initiative, right, where they were looking to make investments globally to basically buy into societies to have both economic and political influence. And they haven't done that very well either. They've kind of bungled it here and there. And so... This, these protests, these developments actually place that effort, their Belt and Road Initiative, also in peril as people begin to wonder what, what they're getting into with the Chinese and whether or not they can trust them, even with a basic you know, economic development project. Look, I think you're right about the Belt and Road Initiative, Jody. I think that uh, at least other than in Africa, where it has been somewhat successful and has, has gained some traction, um, I think you're right that the closer regions to China, sort of their, 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 their near environment, uh, it's been harder for them to, to influence. That being said, I think the challenge here is that let's say you're right and the West is adamantly opposed and we now have – there's now transparency. We now see what's happening to the, to the Uyghurs in, uh, in, in Turkmenistan and, and other edge regions of China, including Xinjiang province. What are we doing about it? Right? We are watching what may very well be, and again, I'm very hesitant to use the term, but you know, the beginnings of what, what, what the Holocaust looked like back in the, early era of, in the early era of World War II, and we stood by, we the West stood by and watched that happen. We're seeing it happen again, again to a, to a sort of underrepresented minority community, um, and we run the risk that we allow this to continue to play out. And the world knows about it, you're right, much more so than the world knew about it uh, back then. The world did nothing then. The world is currently doing nothing today. We're so, talking about it. It's on the front pages, but so what? Well, except concurrently with this human rights and uh, democracy catastrophe going on uh, in China and its environs, there's uh, the economic question between the U.S. and uh, and China, where Trump and Xi are trying to negotiate a new trade deal. It's, it doesn't appear to be happening. I don't think it's going to happen until after uh, Trump goes through the election next year. But there's what the American people seem focused on is tariffs, is on whether they can sell soybeans to China, whether they can buy uh, cheap Chinese manufactured products, or whether they're going to have to pay more because of tariffs, or if they have to buy something from Vietnam instead, right? We're focused on the economic trade relationship. Is that is that where Congress is? What are we, are we seeing any kind of action out of Congress on what's happening in Hong Kong or Xinjiang or in Taiwan or Tibet or any of these other things? What's, where, where are, where are the Republicans, where are the Democrats, yes. Jody? 
all of those. It's actually pretty amazing and yet not surprising because Congress tends to lead on these issues of, of democracy and rights and governance. Uh, but actually, on in all of these places, we're expecting passage of the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act. Uh, in the very near future, there's a Uyghur human rights. Right. And what is that going to do? Right. So that bill, one, it, it has a sanctions piece to it with respect to individuals who are carrying out these activities on the streets of Hong Kong, so the police and others who are violating uh, rights and, and people's human rights. But it also takes a look at the U.S. economic relationship with Hong Kong and whether or not they should continue to have a privileged status uh, vis-a-vis our economy. For example, right now, the tariffs that apply to, to China on goods being exported to China don't apply the same way to Hong Kong. Now, Hong Kong is the economic center of China, right? It is the pathway through which people make investments into China, and China can't afford to lose can't afford to lose Hong Kong and it can't afford to tank uh, to tank their economy. But Congress, so in addition to those, you've got a Tibet bill, a Uyghur bill, and a Hong Kong bill that are all pending before before the Congress, and that I ex- fully expect Republicans and Democrats alike to to sign up on those bills and for those to pass with almost no uh, no opposition. So what happens if there if uh, you know lightning strikes and we do get some sort of trade deal with Beijing right now, Jamil? What is what is what's the reaction in Congress? Let's say it's a little bit of a muddle. We win on a few things, they win on a few things. There's a compromise on the Huawei issue, and uh, we're going to stumble forward and celebrate a a new trade deal with China. What's the what's the reaction on the Hill? Well, I think one uh, there's going to be deep concerns that what Jody has raised are issues that will will go unaddressed. Right, the issue of Tibet, the issue of the Uyghurs the issue of of Hong Kong. And yet, I think that in all these bills, you will see provisions that allow the president some flexibility in implementing them, as we've seen historically. And as a result, if there is a trade deal, the president will probably utilize that flexibility to give China relief on these very aggressive issues. I think what's probably necessary here is something along the lines of what you and Jody worked on uh, when we were all together at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, this idea of a Magnitsky effort for China and its human rights abuses, and a, a broader version of that that targets not just individuals and not just visas and the like, but actually goes after Chinese companies that are participating in the efforts in Xinjiang, that are supporting the efforts of the Chinese and Hong Kong forces in Hong Kong. If you did that, it would be this sort of combination of the Trump policy on, ec- on economics and the human rights views of both Republicans and Democrats in Congress, if you were to implement such a thing, I think you get unanimous support in both houses. The president probably signs it, at least in the current environment. Can you divide Chinese the Chinese economy that way? Can you go after the support for the Chinese Communist Party and President Xi's administration without damaging all parts of the Chinese economy? Is there is there a bifurcation there that you could exploit? I, it's possible, although I see. I think it's hard to imagine, given the inter, the intertwined nature and the interconnected nature of all these Chinese entities, and the fact that the vast majority of quote unquote Chinese private enterprise in any other environment would be viewed as a state-owned enterprise, or at least a state influence enterprise. Right. So the beauty of the Global Magnitsky Act is that it targets people. <clears throat> it has two effects, right? So it goes after individuals who are doing bad things, but it also tends to go after individuals who are in leadership or close to the leadership of a country, which has significant political ramifications within a within a tightly controlled regime, within a tightly within an authoritarian regime like uh, like the Chinese Communist Party. So it has this carry-on effect that is more significant than uh, than 
the sanctions on one individual. Well, it, it, this is exactly right, but that's exactly why I like it as a vehicle to not just go after individuals in a very targeted way, but to go after the key companies that are at the heart of the Chinese economy and that are supporting these efforts. If you could do both, right, and combine them and make it about human rights, this is a place where you could bring together a very strong bipartisan coalition, bring together potentially a really strong global coalition uh, that can raise the issue of Xinjiang publicly and enforce it. And you might be able to bring unif- – now, that would have to be balanced against the significant economic interests that both our nation and other nations have in getting cheap Chinese goods. And maybe that's that friction point. But the question is how much does the world really care about what's happening in Hong Kong, Tibet, and Xinjiang? We've talked a big game to see whether we we'll actually put our, more, our, our money more than our I, More than maybe you think they do. So it is entirely possible that the reaction to this may not be government to government at the end of the day. There is an increasing amount of attention being paid to this by ordinary people and by U.S. businesses who invested in China and in different parts of China who are incredibly concerned that they were going to be tagged uh, as violators or going to be tagged as being complicit in China's activities by virtue of their presence in China. So you may see a kind of a grassroots uh, response to China's activities that may push U.S. companies and other global companies out of China even before there is a government. And, and so what I'm, what I'm hearing you guys say is that a trade deal is no panacea here, that if President Trump and President Xi come up with a trade deal, it's not like it's going to resolve the issues between the U.S. and China. In fact, it may make them worse, and you could see Congress react in a very activist way to try and remanage U.S.-China relations in a way that's different than what the president is thinking about. It's certainly possible, and I think that what Jody just said is a really important point, which is that there is an opportunity here for industry to lead, the way that actually U.S. industry helped lead in South Africa. And in and, Bangladesh. And in Bangladesh. And so there are real opportunities here for industry uh, to, and for the American people to express their views about this. I worry, though, that today we don't hear enough about what's actually happening. And you're right that the word is getting out there. It's on the front page. But I'm not sure that today the American people have either heard enough or feel a close enough connection to what's happening in Xinjiang, even in Hong Kong. Now, we have with Tiananmen, right? And there, there was that connection that we had a very visceral connection to it. I, I worry that we are in the same place in a lot of ways we were in the early 1940s when it came to Europe, where we are focused internally, right? There's very much a populist moment going on here in this country. The country's were at its own economic status, and we're less concerned about what's happening overseas, whether it's in Europe and the Jewish community there, or the Muslim community, or the democracy protesters in China today. Again, I, the parallels are not perfect. I don't you're mean certainly, to... You're certainly not getting a conversation about these issues in the presidential debates. I right. mean, this is not what any of the Democrats are focused on. Uh, President Trump seems to want to keep it on, you know, off the front pages. This is not something that uh, people are going after for votes. Right. I'm so you something. made this reference to a similar era, you know, leading up to the Holocaust. One of the most significant differences here, of course, is the German economy wasn't much of an economy at that point in time, which was part of the reason they were able to do what they did. China is, and we've seen it over and over, where industry has been put in the position where they've needed to lead on this issue so they don't lose their own consumers. So it was true with Bangladesh with the with the fire factory fires. It was true for many years with respect to Burma. It was industry that led the response 
uh, to those actions by those countries and actually force the U.S. to step out of those places or to force concessions. I, I think that's right, but I do also worry that those very same economic ties and the strength and the breadth of the economic ties that we have uh, to China make it much harder to really solve these problems in a robust way. And as you correctly point out, at the end of the day, while industry may have led, it took government, concerted government action to, to terminate these things um, and to really put an end to these activities. And with the increasing economic connection, it's hard to see how that plays out. And so I worry that we turn a blind eye for longer uh, than we – and we already have been turning a blind eye longer than we we have in some in, – in other arenas. And so I worry that we're walking ourselves into a very bad place. Don't you oh. think that China needs to turn down the temperature? They have so many fires burning right exactly. now. They've got, a, exactly. they've got an economic fire. They've got issues with, with the Uyghurs, with Tibet, with Taiwan, with Hong Kong, with their Belt and Road initiatives that are going askew overseas. They have so many fires fires burning, that they run the risk of the entire country going up in flames. You're right. And I worry that the way they end up turning that flame down is by doing what Les suggested, which is making a trade deal with the United States and dividing us politically and economically at home, as other countries have done already. I mean, this is the, 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 possible. the Chinese playbook could look a lot like the Iranian playbook, right? Divide the American public and the U.S. from the European allies by saying, well, we'll do a trade deal. We'll, we're willing to work with you on the nuclear program, but don't worry about our, our I think if they, really, our if they really want, as President Trump has suggested, if China really wants a democratic president, the best thing they could do is cut a trade deal with President Trump, because that would I, that would put him in a box with uh, voters next year. All right, let's, uh, let's do exit question. Yes or no? Will Beijing conduct a Tiananmen Square-style crackdown on Hong Kong protesters, Jamil? I don't think so. I think they're going to play this thing out. I think they're going to let it. They're going to try and get it to peter out by keeping it at a, a substantive lef- enough level of engagement to draw pain out of the Hong Kong protesters, but not enough to cross that line. Jody, I think they'd like to, but they won't. Mostly because of the potential risk to their own internal leadership. I'm also a no, and I, and I think it's for exactly that reason. She's on uh, in, in a dangerous spot right now, and that could push him over the edge. Uh, all right, so hopefully we're not wrong on that question. Okay, uh, to conclude uh, today's uh, podcast, let's talk about everyone bring up one issue that they're following that's not necessarily on the front pages right now. I'll start. Uh, I'm watching uh, events in Egypt. There are protests across the country. They're not huge yet. In some places, they're a little bit bigger than in others. Over uh, corruption, president uh, protesting the Sisi regime. Uh, there seems to be some energy there. Uh, Sisi may not be in as strong a footing as people have thought. Uh, there, there could be changes coming in Egypt. Jamil. I'm watching the elections in Israel. A very tight election happening there right now. The Arab parties, for the first time in a long time, have indicated they're going to support Benny Gantz. Uh, we may see a change in leadership there as a result. Not clear, however, that that will not empower the Netanyahu wing of the Likud party and actually strengthen them in the long run. This actually may be a stronger play uh, if Benny Gantz is viewed as being is ha- as having gained office, the prime minister's office, by support from the Arab coalition. So I'm watching what's going to happen with Brexit. And whether or not Boris Johnson is going to be able to find a pathway forward, and whether or not the British Parliament is able to sustain its to sustain its authority, I was incredibly interested in this idea of prorogation, which is the idea that the Prime Minister can actually just stop Parliament's actions altogether for any given period of time, but then in fact. 
that they weren't able, that that wasn't a successful move by him. Um, so I'm really curious to see how this plays out because they're at a complete and total impasse with massive replica- repercussions, not only for, of course, the UK, but for the EU and really for the global economy. All right, let's do an impromptu exit question based on what you just said, Jody. Will Boris Johnson go to jail? Yes or no? Maybe. Jamil. No. I say yes. Okay, we're evenly divided. All right, that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us on our first Fault Lines episode. We hope you enjoyed the conversation, and be sure to tune in next time. 